Hello, Harvest Muskoka. That's a, that's a pretty good response. This is a definite first for me. If we haven't met, I am Dwayne. My name's Dwayne. I'm the Connections Pastor at Harvest Berry. I'm really glad to be with you today and here in the parking lot and over there at home as well. Uh, we are going to get into God's Word, and I'm eager to do that with you. So I hope you have a Bible in your car. If you have a Bible in your car, hold it out your window so I can see. Prove it to me that you got something with God's Word on it. Oh, yeah, that's good. There's lots of Bibles there at home. Get your Bible ready. Now, I know it's Muskoka, and I know this is the place where you never have a bad day, but I'm sure that's not exactly true. And I wonder as we begin, what kind of week have you had? What kind of week have you spent this week? I wonder how many people with us today, whether you're here or at home, could say with me that, given my circumstances, I could use a few more good days. Could you say that? I bet a lot of us could say that. Yeah, I think, I think some of us could say that. In addition to all of our personal problems, and, and yours are going to be different than mine, we have, uh, the, we have uh, new problems. We have social problems and political drama that now touches the most sacred parts of our church lives. And people who aren't living under rocks, people who aren't apathetic to the theater of human emotions and experiences, they are either more anxious or they're more agitated or they've become more aggressive. And let's face it, some of them have become more annoying about the things they do not like. This lockdown, wherever you are, has changed people. And the lockdown in some places has changed even church people. Some people think we've, under, we've been under persecution, but we, we are among pastors that would argue that, no, this isn't persecution, but we are struggling with people nonetheless. We struggle with people who don't see the world the same way we do. And these struggles are harder now. The niceties, the Canadian niceties that are normally associated with life as usual are the only things that have been allowed to go on vacation. The rest of us are here, are here stuck living under the rising pressures of all this struggle. And this unsolicited airing of opinions that continually happens is tiring. And the unchecked practice of doing this is driving a wedge between Christians at a time when coming together should bring us a lot of comfort. So for many, there has become an uneasy fellowship when we find ourselves gathered with people who have opposing opinions. And making matters worse, we are more aware of the gaping space between the spirituality of the world on one hand and the Christianity, the Christ-centered, obedient, rich, that heartfelt humility of walking with Christ, that lifestyle that we have in church. And we are no longer sure what it means to serve God and country. And our peace as citizens has always been predicated on this. So in a sense, even though it's sunny here, even though we're happy to be here together, when we look at the world and all that's been going on for the world and for the church, these are kind of bad times for all of us. And we can admit that we want to see good days. Not just the good days when Jesus comes back, but also the good days that we are able to experience while we wait for him. So I'm so thankful that God speaks into our lives from his words in, in the pages of scripture, and I found some encouragement from the book of First Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, that's where we're going to be today. And you wouldn't know this, but I've been committed to working my way through the book of First Peter, drawing sermons from there, drawing application for our lives, because Peter wrote to people who were living in the struggle. And I've, 
as much as I've had good days, I would say that there have been many of my days that would be characterized by struggle. And I know that's true for you this morning as well. So Peter has written to believers in the struggle. They face persecution, which is the ultimate form of pressure with people. So we know these words are going to speak to us as well. So I want to begin with you. And if you're ready, let's get into it. Turn your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to see a couple of points here. So let's begin with this. If you are tired of the struggle with people and you want to see good days, first, Peter's going to recommend that we be in love with God's people. Let's be in love with God's people. As we land in this passage, we're catching Peter explaining the values that Christians bring to their relationships. And really, these are values that Jesus brings to relationships through us, even when it's hard to do. Peter's already addressed specific relationships in the passages that have come before, and now he's summarizing with instructions for all of us. He says in verse 8 of chapter 3, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderheartedness, and a humble mind. This is God's goal for the church that wants to see good days. So I want you to look at your Bibles. I'm using the ESV version, and Paul uses, uh, Peter uses this word, finally, and when he's using this word, he's not just transitioning between sections of the letter. He's using a word that implies an ultimate end, a specific goal. He's using this Greek word telos, which is rich in meaning. And this word appears to us in the scriptures when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, it is finished. He's using a form of this word telestasi or telos, talking about this goal that he's bringing forward and says it's accomplished. And that as we see this word here, we understand that Peter is aiming at something and in verse 8, represents what we aim at and what we call at our church, uncommon community. You guys talk about being intentional and in community. And then he starts to give us these five tension-relieving expressions of uncommon community, of, of fellowship, of Christian friendship. So I want to look at those with you for a few minutes before we move on. Five tension-relieving expressions of uncommon community. First, we'll see that he writes unity of mind. This is agreement like you guys made an agreement to join us today in worship. It's intentional cooperation. Church doesn't happen with, without intentional cooperation and, and agreement. Even with varied opinions. We're not all driving the same car. We don't all live in the same place. We do not all think the same way. But despite our varied opinions, we choose to work together. He writes about sympathy which I think is the idea of no emotional isolation. Don't you love that? The idea that no matter what you're feeling, there's going to be people that God brings around you to, to go through that with you in sympathy. You're not left to feel alone. We feel your sorrows and joys together. We feel your fears and frustrations together, particularly and especially as you share them with us. No one's perfect at, at doing this, but the Bible always encourages us to be sympathetic with one another to share our experiences, ups and downs, and to be the church this way. Peter writes about brotherly love, which is goodwill, mutual peace and, and support and trust. This is exemplified in the scriptures through relationships like David and Jonathan in the Old Testament and Ruth and Naomi. We see it in the church as it's described in in the book of Acts at the end of chapter two when they're in everybody's homes sharing everything they have in common. It's the good days that followed Pentecost. 
And when we forget this at our house, when we start to forget that we need goodwill, I like to remind my family that we're on the same team. So we have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love. And then he writes this word, tenderheartedness. It's going to be translated differently, but it, it derives from this Greek concept that's really this fun word. It's, it's an old throwback to a philosophy in Greek thinking that our emotional center is in, our, in here. And, and we still have that thinking. We have, we have butterflies in our stomach about something. We get a pit, we get a feeling in the pit of our stomach. We still think of ourselves when we're emotionally connected to something, sometimes from the core of our being. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about affection. The idea of being emotionally vulnerable with each other, a gut level sensitivity, an obvious fondness for one another. You can see this when people come to church. We saw it this morning as you came and you still found ways to greet one another, waving at each other, taking time to get close enough to, to say hi. We can see this depicted when we see grand, uh, grandkids and grandparents getting along and that fondness that's there. I, I noticed uh, this in Marshall, one of, your, one of your staff here, talking about the youth, this affection, this tender-heartedness towards the youth that he loves and the people that he loves at this church. And then it finishes with this phrase, a humble mind. Humility is a character of, that relieves attention in our uncommon community. It's the, willing to be low, it's the willingness to be low. It's the willingness to be the least person. It's the, the willingness to be the last person sometimes. What we have here is a readjusted view of ourselves based on a true view of Jesus Christ. And with, with this, this is what enables us to wash people's feet, metaphorically, but sometimes we, we have to do things like that for real. And in a church, practically, we have to clean up sometimes after other people's messes. We, we get to do ministry that requires humility, and every time we do that, what we are doing is we are elevating another person by how we choose to serve them. So we have those ideas, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderheartedness, and a humble mind. These are the things that relieve the tension in a community that, that worships Christ. And to see good days, we have to work together as a community of people who have been infused with and in, informed by the Holy Spirit of God. If we're facing struggles as Christians out there, wherever we are, how much more important is it, is it going to be that when we come together, we get to experience Christian friendship as a church? Not just where we expect it to happen, not just in our services, not just in our small groups, not just in our teams, not just in the, in the planned events where we come together around barbecues or at cottages or on, or on patios, not just in those times, but it has to happen now in all the interactions we have, the gestures, the tonality, the way we look through a window at the person beside us as they're trying to keep socially distant to, to make sure they know that we love them. We have to offer these same traits that we just talked about to the believers in the spaces beside us, in Zoom rooms, in on a telephone call now, if you're, if you're used to doing that, or even if you weren't to, on social media, on, on postings, in chat rooms and in chat groups. As churches get bigger, this becomes more difficult, but we always have to be looking for ways to remind everyone that we are connected to Christ. Our response to this pressure and the temptation to separate, according to similar opinions, has to be to fall deeper in love to fall deeper in love with God's people. 
I've been using a little guidebook to help me as I study this book of Peter. It's been written by the Reverend William Barclay. He's an older guy, and he wrote this about the good days of church unity. He said, our good days are going to be those in which, and here's a quote, powerful tensions are held together by an overmastering loyalty, a loyalty to one another. I love that phrase, overmastering loyalty, and strong antipathies of race and color, of temperament and taste, of social positions and economic interests. They are all overcome in common worship and common obedience. If you're tired of the struggle with people and you want to see good days, you need to be in, God, in love with God's people. So that's our first point this morning. As we look into Peter, he's encouraging us to, to remember we have to love each other. And that's going to help us. But if we want to, if we're tired of the struggle and we want to see good days, we have to also stop retaliating over offenses. How many of you guys have used your horn in a less positive way than you've used it at church this morning before? You're driving and someone's cut you off and you, you honked at the wrong time. That's right. We, we know how to retaliate with our horns. There's lots of ways that we can do this, but we see in this passage that Peter is encouraging us to think about our, the way we retaliate. As we move on in the scriptures, we're at verse 9 now. Peter is, is switching scenarios. He's moving between the church world and the non-church world. And we know that it doesn't matter where you are. You can be offended anywhere by anyone, whether it's downtown Toronto, downtown Barrie, downtown Muskoka, downtown Harvest, um, sorry, Huntsville. You can be offended anywhere. It can be by a believer or an atheist. It can be from a spouse or a child. It could be a sibling. It could be your boss, an ally, an enemy, a friend, a stranger. In general, this idea of offense, it can apply across the board, but Peter has in mind those people who are particularly picking on Christians because of their faith. And he writes to the church, he says, do not return evil for their evil or reviling for reviling. If you're thinking about this word reviling and you're not sure what it means, it's the idea of being insulted or degraded. And, and this can happen to us. I'm thankful that, that I work in a church and it doesn't happen to me that often. It certainly doesn't happen where I, where I work. People are often uplifting to me, but I, I can get out. And, and one time I was insulted, degraded. I was picking up something for my wife at the grocery store at around 11 p.m. at night. I pulled into a grocery store and I parked the car near the front door and it was right in the laneway. Someone needed to get across the street. And this gentleman was walking into the store late at night. This was long before the lockdown. These are years ago. But he's bringing his elderly mom into the store, trying to get his last-minute groceries. And, and as he saw where I was parked, he, he didn't like it. And he let me know with some colorful language, four-letter kind. And he told me I was something that I didn't agree with. And, and I was offended. And I have to admit, I probably wanted to retaliate. And anytime you've been in a situation like that, and let's face it, there are a lot worse situations that people face. These are difficult situations to live through. And God wants to be in your head and he wants to be in your heart to redirect you when you're thinking about retaliating. At the moment when you are forced to suffer a great injustice, a great indignity, you really need God's help. And in another sermon that I preached from this book, I, I reminded our church that this is when, for us, God's grace matters the most. And I don't know if you've noticed but injustice has been on display lately. Have you seen a picture of a riot? 
Have you seen a headline that talks about injustice? Have you noticed a post? Has it come up in some type of conversation that you've had? Or maybe in a social media uh, announcement or, or tweet? Injustice has been put on display and as we see it, we react to it, don't we? And that reaction is quick. We get angry when we think an injustice has been done to someone like us or someone we care about. And that emotion of anger is one that we can actually share. I was reading an article from the Smithsonian. They published an article about the speed of emotions that, and how fast emotions can travel on the internet. And they found this um, in their study. It was from the Smithsonian. They said, joy moves faster than sadness or disgust, but nothing is speedier than rage. And they found that this was particularly true about rage or anger that's associated with, with perceived injustice and like over diplomatic issues and different things like that. So th this was interesting for our times. I think this underlies a truth about ourselves that retaliation is almost like our natural response to being offended. It's instinctive behavior related to anger. But let me ask you, why are we like that? Why, why are we so quick to move to the horn when someone cuts us off? Why do we forget all the other words in our vocabulary when someone offends us and we can only think of ones that would hurt them? Why are we like that? Why do we want to retaliate against injustice? I believe part of the answer seems to be that we share God's emotional response to injustice and to the insult of his image. We, we know from scripture that when God made men and women, he made them with the image of God and every human being reflects the image of God and every human life is valuable to him. So when we abuse one another, God gets angry about that. And our anger, I think in part, reflects his. But listen, his justice and his judgment is not reflected in our evil or reviling responses to, the, to people's offenses, offensive behavior. Our words and our actions, rather, they attempt to ruin a person that God wants to redeem. If we retaliate based on what we feel and with no regard for God, we make an idol of ourselves in that moment. We do what Cain did to Abel. We use the excuse of offense to play God and offer a judgmental word or action that is inconsistent with God's will and his character. And that's why that kind of retaliation is wrong. This command that we have from Peter means that God is the judge and we are not. Our response to evil and reviling must always be consistent with the Great Commission and the commandments of Jesus Christ. So even when we're treated unjustly, we have to promote the gospel of redemption to sinners. And even when we're offended, we have to love God and we have to love people. Peter shows us Jesus as the prime example of this. If you're in the scriptures with me, you look up a little bit ahead in the scriptures, sorry, a little bit back into chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, and you'll see an example of Christ there. For to this you have been called, Peter writes, at verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, for he, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, 
he did not threaten. When they cut him off in his car, he didn't beep his horn. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Retaliation is antithetical to Christ's example and therefore it subverts his mission to our own agenda. In verses 10 to 12 of chapter three now, Peter brings forward Psalm 34 and he's reworked it a little bit for the context. We can see warnings there about our language to to control our tongues, to keep our lips from deceit and to put our efforts towards peace. We also have our hearts settled about the indignity of justice because we see that God is going to address it in his time and in exactly the right way. If you look at the scriptures, there at verse 10 it says this, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if you would see good days, you need to be in love with God's people, you need to stop retaliating over fences, and you need to bless the world because of your calling. I want to remind you that God wants to redirect you when you want to retaliate. And as we come to the, verse 9, the other part of it, Peter's going to complete this thought, and he says... On the contrary, so when you're offended, instead of offending them back, on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. There's no doubt in my mind that the church is going to receive the eternal life that Jesus Christ promised us, but Peter is not thinking about that at this moment. He's actually thinking about what we must do while we wait for that blessing to come. So he instructs the church, which was facing the struggle of being new and scattered among the nations. They weren't able to gather the way they wanted to. They were under the struggle of persecution. They were under all the regular life struggles of, of things not working right, of things not going well. And people would come along and make it harder for them. And he says, when this happens, when you're offended, instead of, instead of retaliating, I want you to return blessing for offense. We want to make an impact with the gospel. I'm sure that's why a lot of you have gathered here this morning. We want this thing that we believe, our relationship with Christ, to make a huge difference in the world. And to make an impact with the gospel, the church must do what the world would never anticipate. We offer God's blessing to the person or the people whose offensive behavior would want to cause us to sin in retaliation. And this command is not limited to back then. It's for every church and every generation. It's for us. It's for you. It's for your family. It's for every Christian that reads these words. Blessing can mean that we speak well of people. It means that we can ask God to be gracious or merciful towards them. It means that we can pray on their behalf. We can help them practically. It means that when people call us names, we call on the name of Jesus Christ. It means that when people treat us like we're unworthy, we lead them to the worthy one. It means that we treat them to the best of what God has already shared with us. So here's a question for you this morning. 
I'll give you just a few seconds to try to answer it in your cars. There'll be no prizes for this, but you already have the prize. Question, what is, it, what is the best thing that we sinners have received from God? What is the best thing that we sinners have received from God? It's the blessing of forgiveness. It's the offering of peace with God that we live in this relationship with Jesus Christ now, that, that Christ would suffer on the cross for us though we do not deserve it and offer us this eternal life that fills us now and begins to change how we live. That's the gift we have received. And it's the best thing, amen, that's true. Honk that up, that's true. I hate that I just said honk that up. That's the weirdest phrase any preacher's ever said. I have to admit that. But anyways, it's true. We can celebrate that. It's the best gift we received. Forgiveness. This is the high point of this passage. It's the pivot of this passage. It's, it's underlying this phrase, on the contrary. So when someone, for, someone offends you, on the contrary, turn around and bless them. And you can do it. Sincere blessing requires sincere forgiveness. We have to understand that our calling is to offer forgiveness because we received it, but like the person that's offended us, we never deserved it. Peter has already elaborated on our calling in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. And again, you can flip back and look at verse 9 to 10 in chapter 2. And remember that this is true of you no matter what is said about you or what is done to you. He writes, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not Harvest Muskoka, but now you are Harvest Muskoka. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Such wonderful news, such a wonderful experience that we live in as Christians. Blessing the people who have sinned against us and who do not yet know God's mercy is part of our mission as Christians. In fact, it might be the whole concept of our mission. In this way, we are all evangelists of the gospel and we all get to demonstrate the reality of a changed heart and a changed, a changed mind about forgiveness and sin and, and, and retaliation. When you're focused on this truth of being forgiven and you're full of the Spirit, you're capable of responding to evil and injustice with grace and mercy and ministry. You can respond to people you struggle with. You can, you can respond to them in ways that are inspiring to others. And our world responds to that kind of behavior, that kind of in, inspirational forgiveness with amazement and awe. That study I was citing before that was written by the Smithsonian that found out that rage moved really quickly on the internet, they described awe as feelings of wonder and excitement that come from encountering great beauty or knowledge. And that feeling of awe, when it's shared among people, they say that actually moves faster than anger or rage. God has set us up so that we can respond to him and share that and that's going to overcome our tendency to be angry. Nothing is more awe-inspiring than the blessing that goes far beyond what any person has deserved. 
This is why we are fascinated with Jesus Christ. Paul proclaims in Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Blessing someone who has sinned against you is evidence of God's work in your life. It's part of your testimony. It's part of how you proclaim him to the world. But listen, don't wait to bless the world only if they offend you first. You need to offer God's mercy simply because you know it's desperately needed. Bless your children if you're a parent. Bless your children in the way you parent them. Kids, if you have parents. And if you're a kid and you don't have parents, I want to talk to you. Bless your parents with behavior that, that respects them and honors them. If you're working, bless your employers in the way you carry out your work. If you live under a government, bless your government by the way you communicate with them or the way you communicate about them. If you're under a police force, bless the police force by showing respect for the authority and appreciation for the risk that they take to take care of you. If you live in a neighborhood, bless those who live around you with undue kindness. I struggle sometimes to cut my neighbor's lawn if he hasn't cut it himself. I admit that. But I remember things like this and I think, this is my mission. I want to bless him. Bless friends and family that think your opinion about masks or vaccines or measures for control are wrong. Bless the people in your life who persecute you for your faith. And listen, as you do these things, do it from a settled conviction and an appreciation for all that Christ has done for you. And be glad about it. You get to do this for Jesus. You get to display the gospel and the Holy Spirit at work in your life. There's an author named Frederick, Frederick Beekner, and he writes to advise people who are looking to to bring this blessing into their calling, into the work that they do. And he gives us this insight, and I want to close with it. He, he writes a quote saying, The place that God calls you is the place where your deep gladness, your deep gladness about the salvation you've received, and the world's deep hunger meet. I know we are in a place where we don't really want to be, and we can describe that place as a struggle with life, with people, with our problems. It's hard. You're probably tired of doing the things you have to do just to cope. So I would remind you, if you would see good days, be in love with God's people. Stop retaliating sinfully over, over offenses and bless the world because of your calling. I want to pray for you. Father, I'm so thankful to be with your church, thankful for this testimony that they've gathered here to be your community. Lord, it's clear that they love you and they love the people you've called them to worship with. Lord, as we, as we move through our lives at this time, nothing is the way we really want it to be. Lord, we would call on you to, to, to bring us out of this situation, to bring an end to the discomfort. But as we wait, Father, we, we would ask you to help us to, be, to demonstrate what has happened in our hearts, particularly as a church, particularly where this wedge has driven us apart from other Christians. Lord, let us show forgiveness. Let us be people that offer blessing. Let us be changed people, God. I ask that you'd help to apply this word to each one of our hearts. 
and today if anyone in a particular way is suffering. I pray that they would reach out and that they would get to experience the great sympathy, the tenderheartedness, the brotherly love that's available through Christian community and that they'd be comforted by all that the church can offer them. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, church, for gathering with us today. It's wonderful to see you today. And I hope that you guys are ready to go into a great week. And as you go, remember that you're loved.